If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here with us this morning. This is my favorite day of the year, as it is maybe for many of you as well. And it is always just such a privilege to be able to spend time together talking about Jesus having risen. Before we do that and um, move uh, any further in the service, I'd ask for you to please join with me in prayer. Father, we have already together feasted on the reality that you have conquered death and that you have dealt with our sins and that the last word is not death, but it is life and it is grace. Lord, we are people who need to hear this again and again, and we need to be convinced of the reality. So we ask even now as we look at the word that you have given your servant, Paul, that you have helped him to write, that you would also help us to hear this, that we might be renewed by this gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a friend who has an irrational fear of flying. Perhaps you uh, can identify with him. He, I should point out, is one of the smartest people I know. He has read so many books, and he has an almost photographic memory to recall them. He has written dozens of books and articles. So most likely, when he's on the plane, he could probably explain Bernoulli's principle and all of the things that explain why this plane is able to fly better than the pilot himself. He understands it. 
Yet when he steps in the plane and it takes off, he gets freaked out, irrationally, but very severely. Perhaps, as I said, you can identify. It's not uncommon to be afraid of flying. And I think the reason is because there's these two really important factors that when they come together, tend to make us irrational. And that is, it is something that is very unfamiliar. If you think about it, we, have ne we, we never experience being carried by air, except when we're flying, right? And there are very high stakes. It is important. Our lives literally are hanging on that plane. When unfamiliar and importance come together, then it is hard sometimes to be rational. Now, if only one of those two features are there, it's not a big deal. So, for example, when, uh, when I am driving, I mean, statistics say I'm actually more in danger when I am driving than when we're flying. And depending on who you are when you're driving, those statistics might even go higher up. But we're, we're not afraid, right? It's so familiar to us. We feel in control. We're aware of it. We're not bothered by that. On the other hand, if something is just unfamiliar, that's fine too. If someone tells me about the practices of Tibetan Buddhist monks, I'll probably believe it, but it won't really matter to me. There's not any stakes. It's not important to me. But when you bring unfamiliarity and importance together, that's when it gets tough. That's where flying, as I said, is, is suddenly scary. That's why parenting can be scary, isn't it? Because with parenting, you're always in unfamiliar territory. You're always figuring things out. And it matters a lot to you. And when you bring those two things together, we get afraid irrationally. Or it's like that with our own personal health. When we feel something going on inside of us, we don't really understand what's going on with our bodies unless we're a doctor. And so because it matters so much and because it's unfamiliar, we become irrational. When, when importance and unfamiliarity come together, it's hard for us to see things clearly. It's hard for us to trust. Now here's why this is important. What we are talking about this morning is perhaps the supreme example of bringing together the unfamiliar and the important. There is nothing more foreign and more unreal to us than the idea of resurrection from the dead. We have never seen anything like it, have we? I mean, maybe we know of someone who, for a minute or two, had their heart stop and they were resuscitated. But when we're talking not just minutes or hours, but days where someone is completely dead and then they rise from the dead, conquering death once and for all, that is completely foreign to us. And it is so, so important. Everything hangs on the reality of this event. And so when you bring this unfamiliarity and importance together, it's hard for us to see things clearly. It's hard for us to trust. Usually what happens is either we deep down decide, I don't actually think this happens, or we deep down say it's not actually that important because it's so hard for us to bring both of these together. And that is a shame that we do that because this is the best news in the world. It literally is. It is the news that offers us joy and hope. And so our hearts need to be convinced of this reality. So here's what I want to do this morning. Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote the, the, the uh, first Corinthians as a mentor, as a pastor to people who are needing to hear truths. And the passage that was just read was him trying to speak specifically about the resurrection. And he has really 
two points for us today that I think we need to hear, and they're really simple. And that is that the resurrection really happened and that it really matters. And so what I'd like us to do is just to try to hear what he has to say so that our hearts can be more deeply convinced. So first, the resurrection really happened. Now, perhaps you might be thinking, I don't really need to hear this part. I already believe. But the thing is, so actually did the Corinthian church. He's writing to Christians who believe in the resurrection. But the thing is, we can believe without fully having our hearts convinced. And so Paul is seeking to deepen that conviction. And in, in this morning, I think this passage seeks to deepen that conviction in our hearts. He begins by, by focusing on the core principles of Christianity, what we call the gospel. He says, I want to remind you what I have heard, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, if you don't have it, I invite you to keep your bulletins open as we're going to be working through this passage together. Verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it is here, now that he has gotten to the resurrection, that he really kind of camps out. He really wants to linger on this last bit of what is the gospel. And, and what he wants us to see is why we can know this is true. Look at verse 5. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas. By the way, that's just the Aramaic name for Peter. We're talking about Peter here. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Do you hear what he's doing? This, this parade of witnesses that he is giving would have been incredibly compelling to the Corinthian church as they were hearing Paul say this. So that it can be compelling to us, I'd like for us to kind of imagine this almost as a, as a court scene where, where the, the thing that is being debated, what is being tried is whether or not Christ really did rise from the dead. And Paul is the attorney advocating this truth. Now we can imagine we're already kind of part of the way through the trial. Paul has already presented what we might call the circumstantial evidence. He's already brought in exhibit A, the, a picture of the empty tomb with a stone rolled away. He has stipulated, you know, writings where someone has acknowledged, yes, no matter how much the enemies of Christianity have tried, no one has been able to find the body of Jesus to present it as counter evidence. It does not seem to be found anywhere. Paul has brought the expert witness, the, the social analyst who has said, it is completely inconceivable that this, this small group of around 100 followers of a person who was crucified could somehow over just the span of a decade or two have exploded into this massive movement throughout the world. There is no explanation that makes sense of it. All of this evidence Paul has already presented for why the resurrection is real. But now, now he comes to the heart of his case. He comes by presenting witnesses. This is the direct evidence, and it's not just one or two. It is more than 500 people he is going to call to the stands in favor of his case. Now, just as a moment of pause before we kind of continue with this image, perhaps you're wondering, 
I know Paul lists these guys, but how can we be sure that they actually exist? How do we know that he's not just, you know, kind of blowing smoke? Oh, yeah, I've got lots. I've got lots of great witnesses. Believe me, these witnesses are better than you can even imagine, even if you don't know their name. They're great people. How do we know that's not what Paul is doing right here? It's a legitimate question. But it's useful to realize that that's not really something that Paul could do because because the city of Corinth is not some podunk town in the middle of nowhere where the wool can be pulled over their eyes. This is a metropolis where there's all sorts of traveling. So when Paul lists Peter and the 12 and 500 and James, these are people that the people in Corinth knows. In fact, we have evidence because of even the way that Paul speaks of Peter in this letter that this church knows Peter. They've already heard Peter speak of the resurrection. This church has had other church leaders come in and they've spoken about what they've seen or the people that they know. And not only that, but, but the people of Corinth themselves are travelers. Some of their church have gone and perhaps gone to Jerusalem and they've met some of these people. These are not just people that Paul is able to fabricate. In fact, when he says, some of whom are still alive, his point is, if you are not sure of this, you can verify them. You can go out and check. Paul is listing real people who are real witnesses. And so you can imagine in this court scene how we have not just minutes or hours or even days, but weeks of testimony. One person after another speaking of what they saw firsthand. And in the course of this time, you hear this coherent narrative of of how on Friday they saw Jesus on the cross filled with shame. They saw him breathe his last breath. They saw the side being pierced and his body lifeless buried in the tomb. They speak of how on Saturday they felt enormous despair or confusion and hopelessness. And then on Sunday, there was some confusion. Women spoke about how the, 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 the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and, and they heard news of, of strange interactions with angels. And then rumors that were too hard to believe. Two people who said they walked to a city but came back because they found themselves talking with Jesus. It was impossible to believe until the moment that they will always remember when Jesus came and met with them face to face and ate food and was touched by them and spoke to them not just once but repeatedly time after time this is the witness that one person after another person after another person day after day could present in this now if there is an opposing attorney at this point of course when you have this many witnesses your only hope is to try to show that they're not reliable so perhaps the opposing attorney was like well wait a second this is this is long ago surely you're not remembering things truthfully, but, but here's the, the, the facts. This is not that long ago that Paul is writing this. By almost every assessment, Jesus died either at 30 or 33 AD. And almost every scholar also agrees that this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church was around 55 AD. That means at most it's 25 years. 25 years ago that these witnesses are recalling what took place. Now, if you are a millennial or younger, 25 years sounds like a long time. But for those of us 40 or over, this is not that long. 
Do you remember what you were doing in 1991? I remember some very specific scenes. I remember in high school class hearing Mr. Berg talk about Desert Storm, because that had just taken place. I remember in a car with a friend hearing for the first time, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. <laughs> I remember being uh, in the, the parking lot of the Milford Movie Theater, having just seen Terminator 2 and thinking that was the best movie I had ever seen. <laughs> Now, I remember these fairly, fairly vibrantly. I remember details. And these are all fairly mundane things that I've just shared. Can you imagine if you had met the risen Lord of the universe? You better believe you would be able to remember what things looked like, what it smelled like, what you heard. You would remember in detail. This was something that these witnesses, this is not something way in the distant that's legend. This is what they remember clearly. Okay, well, the opposing attorney tries something else. This is just a hoax. They're all just kind of in this, on this massive conspiracy, but really 500 plus people all deciding to lie about this. It's awfully difficult to believe, isn't it? And what's the motive? If, if you had a group of people kind of conspiring to lie, you'd think they would get something out of it, but the very opposite of true. These, these witnesses who speak of Jesus' resurrection do so risking their lives. By speaking of the fact that they saw Jesus arose, they have been outcasts of their communities, even families. Some have been imprisoned for holding to this. Some have been killed. There is no motivation for them to hold to this except for the fact that they saw Jesus. And it's not even a case of confirmation bias because they just wanted it to be true because some of these witnesses actually were opposed to Jesus. James, Jesus' brother, we have records in the gospel of Jesus' family being really skeptical about Jesus. But then Jesus appeared to James, the resurrected Jesus, and he saw clearly. Well, in case there's any remaining doubt, Paul puts one more witness on the stand, himself. He says, last of all, as one untimely, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, what does he mean by untimely born? What he's saying is he kind of came to Christianity later than everyone else. The next sentence, he says, I am the least of the apostles. And then he says, because I persecuted the church of God. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, after he ascended, Paul was convinced that this Christianity thing was a cult. He participated in killing some of the witnesses. He sought to imprison some of the witnesses. He was opposed to Christianity with all of his being, with all of his passion, until one day he did a complete 180 and became one of its most powerful evangelists and missionaries. Now, I was trying to think of what an analog for that would be for today. What, what would be equally shocking? And I couldn't come up with anything but here's my best attempt. Imagine if tomorrow morning you turned on the TV and you saw a press, like, you know, like a press conference with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump said, I have decided to forego my attempts to be a president. I don't think I'd be good at that job. Instead, I am going to devote all of my remaining efforts to standing with the most vulnerable in society to upholding the needs of the undocumented immigrants, of the refugees. I want to spend every cent that I have and every fiber of my being standing against racism and sexism. Imagine if you saw that. I mean, what would your response be? 
I mean, first, you'd have to pick your job off the floor, and second, you'd want to make sure this wasn't some major prank. But once you'd verified its reality, you would be asking, what just happened to this man? Wouldn't you? And that's exactly what people would be asking about Paul. Because he made a turn even more significant. He went from giving everything to destroying. His reputation was built on opposing Christianity. And in a moment, he changed. And all of his life then was devoted to furthering the gospel, even though he was stoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was rejected, he was shipwrecked. He had miserable things happen to him, yet he kept holding to this. And he explains, and there's one reason why. Because I saw the risen Lord Jesus. Because when I was walking to Damascus, he appeared to me and he spoke to me. And I am a witness that Jesus has actually risen. And not only are his words a witness, the words that he's even writing here, we have here in Corinthians a firsthand account of what has been seen, but his life was a witness. Every moment of his life was bearing witness to the fact that Jesus has risen. And with that, Paul rests his case. Now, let me just ask really quickly, you know, the danger of, you know, our Western style of preaching uh, is, is monological, right? Like, I don't have you saying amen. I don't have you kind of coming back and forth. And, you know, that would be exciting if it ever happened, but it won't because of who we are. So the danger of this is that it's really easy to be passive. It's just kind of listen. And what I, what I want you to do is not be passive about this but to engage in this question. What do you think, as Paul has laid this evidence before you, you need to own a decision? Because you can't afford to be passive. You can't afford to be kind of like this, this sideline quarterback who sees things both ways. If you don't find yourself convinced, just be honest about that and engage and wonder why. But if you are, own it. Because here's the thing, everything hangs on this reality. Everything. And that's where Paul takes us in the second half of our passage. That not only did this really happen, but this really matters. I want to jump straight to verse 17 where we kind of get to the thick of that argument. Where Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you know what he's doing here? This is, this is kind of a version of It's a Wonderful Life with Clarence. Remember how we have like this moment of stepping back and let's just imagine what things would be like if you never lived. Well, let's just imagine what things would be like if Christ hadn't risen from the dead. Christ hadn't risen from the dead, you are still in your sins. Because Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins, and if he hasn't risen, that means he was not able to be successful in that task. That means you still have God's judgment to fear. You are not forgiven by God, and that's a terrifying truth. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then death is death. We have all these popular images of, of seeing a light at the end of the tunnel or the end of the Titanic. There's this dream that happens, and that's the ever life, and that's what we hope for. But if Christ hasn't risen, none of that's true. There is no life beyond this life. Death is the end. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then life is meaningless. That's what Paul says. He says, 
We are to be pitied. You know, it's not that my life is still okay. No, if I've invested everything in following the risen king, and if I've given all of my life to that, and yet it turns out that this is all nothing, this is all a hoax, then we are living the most ridiculous life, and it's pitiable. See, everything, and I mean everything, hangs on the reality of the resurrection. You know, I've heard it said sometimes, and I've, I've read this a number of places, where people have said, you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter to me whether Jesus truly rose from the dead, because the story is what matters, and that story inspires me. It tells me that even after there are endings, there are new beginnings beyond that. After deaths, there are resurrections, and it doesn't need to be true for it to be meaningful to me. Do you see from our passage how Paul would say that is a load of cow manure? That is absolutely absurd. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no hope. Later on, Paul says, really, all we have left to do is just eat our full and gorge ourselves, drink even if it means we get drunk, to live up right now because there is no tomorrow. If, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Macbeth had it right when he wrote that life, or when Shakespeare wrote that life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That is so good, I need to say it again. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Christ has dealt with our sins. In fact, Christ has dealt with death. In fact, Christ is the risen king who is making all things new. That means everything. If you have trusted in Jesus and trust that he has risen from the dead, that means you never need to be afraid again because your sins are dealt with. There is nothing that stands between you and God. He loves you. He is on your side. If you have trusted in Jesus and believe he is risen from the dead, then death is not the final word. Don't you hate death? I hate death. And I love how in this passage later on, Paul... Paul says that God sees death as an enemy. It is not the way things are meant to be. And what we are promised is in the last day, death will be swallowed up. We will be given new bodies that can never decay. And we will be able to sing a taunt to death. Where death is your sting? Where death is your victory? There is none. If Jesus has risen from the dead, if you trust that that is true, that means your life has meaning. It means that you have hope because he's making all things new. There's a, a writer, one of my favorite writers, a man by the name of Wendell Berry, and he writes this, this poem that kind of focuses ultimately on the resurrection, and he has this line that has kind of just haunted me as I've thought about it, which is, practice resurrection. And by that he means really we can live in one of two ways. We can practice death, that is, believing that death 
is really the end, that life is just like sand that is slowly slipping through our fingers, so we just have to, to consume as much as we can, suck as much joy as we can out of life, because that's all there is. That's practicing death. Or we can practice resurrection saying there is so much more. There is hope that right now this is just the beginning. So we can invest ourselves. We can invest ourselves in our children, knowing that they are being brought up, knowing that they have a risen king. We can invest ourselves in our work, knowing that this world is being redeemed. We can take the long, slow approach because we have eternity before us. We are called to practice resurrection. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to have joy and hope framed by the knowledge that Jesus has risen from the dead? I know I do. And so we come back to the question we asked before, do we find ourselves convinced that Jesus has truly risen? Let me tell you my answer. Yes and no. Yes, because I am utterly convinced of the reality of the gospel. I am utterly convinced in my mind that what we have here is true and is real and is sustaining. But when I look at my life and I see how I can live fearfully and I can live sometimes without the joy that I could have, I realize I'm like my friend who on the airplane can explain why that plane is never going to crash but keeps on being afraid. Do any of you know what that's like, to know with your mind that the resurrection is true, but to have your heart yet not convinced like you want it to be? Here's the good news. God doesn't just tell us why it's true. He hasn't just risen Jesus from the dead. He hasn't just given us witnesses. But the Bible says he also will give us faith as we ask. He gives us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and help us to say wholeheartedly yes. And so I would invite you this morning to join with me in a really simple prayer, a prayer that was said to Jesus when he was here on this earth. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. If that is your prayer as well, would you please, as we turn to the table, the table that is meant to nourish our faith, turn to God asking that he would move us out of our irrationality and help us to see what is real and what is good. Would you please pray with me? Father, this is the best news in the world, that your son did not stay in death, but as he represented us, as he carried our sins, you rose him from the dead and you have conquered death. Father, we want, we want to be completely convinced of this, but our hearts are weak. And so with this man who was humble before Jesus, we also pray, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. And Father, even now as we come to the table that your son has set before us. We ask that as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, that we would nourish ourselves on Jesus and that our faith would be strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.